0: God bless you all for your faithfulness. Verse 7 says this, And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, a hundred, threescore, and fifteen years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that as your people, in a, in a world that is... Drifting on the sea that is in darkness, that has no understanding, no direction in a world in which we were all once blind. Thank you that we can come to your word. And it is light and it is truth. And Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. And we praise you for that. And I pray you'll enlighten our eyes some more tonight. And just, just again, Father, remind us that we can trust the God of this book. In Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis 25, in verse 8, we just read that the days of Abraham's life, quote, were full. At 75 years of age, you remember, Abram stepped out in faith. He cut his family ties, he pulled up his roots, and he started out on this, this pilgrim road following God's will. A century later, we find that he started out great, but it's a joy to see that he ends up great. And he finishes well. Again, verse 8, And Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man, and full of years. By the way, you'll notice the emphasis here on the word days. It's interesting because, you know, the days of the years of his life. It just doesn't say the years. The days of the years of his life were 175 years. It's a reminder, at least to me, of Genesis 1, the fact that life is is, after all, made up of days. God, in His wisdom, has punctuated time so that each day for us as His people is actually a unit. It tells us uh, that Abraham lived for 63,000 days. Yes, days. And, of course, the secret to any life of faith, living for God, walking for God, beginning and finishing well, really is a matter of taking life one day at a time. Vance Havner used to say, you keep short accounts with God by living every day. In fact, in some respect, a single day, we've talked about this in years past, it's been a long time. In some respects, a single day really is sort of a lifetime in microcosm. You start the day out, that's the beginning, you're born, you started out with God. You live your life for God as best you can throughout that day. You close the day with Him and then you sleep. That's the New Testament word for die or death. And then in the morning, which is a symbol of resurrection, it's a brand new day. Jesus said what? He said, take no thought for tomorrow because sufficient unto the day. One single solitary day. That's what you concern yourself with, not the troubles of tomorrow or yesterday. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Ephesians 4.26 says, let not the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, take care of it today. Today is your little tiny lifetime. So God is counting the days of Abraham's life and the measure of his days. And then you'll notice it says this, verse 8 again. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. You know, there are a lot of people who die in old age. But not everybody dies in what God calls here a good old age. There's an old saying that says, the devil has no happy old men. And that's, I mean, clearly true. But it's also true that nobody really enjoys getting old. These bodies wear out. The human body tends to run down. And at a certain time, it just, it just kind of wanes away. And that's what happens eventually to a man called Abraham. Like the old saying goes, I'd rather be over the hill than under the hill or something like that. I can't remember where it goes. But it still says that his days were full. He died in a good old His days were full. Now, remember the covenant. Remember the promise that God, remember that God put Abraham to sleep? Remember that in Genesis 15? Here's what it says. In fact, they might put the verse up on the screen. Verse 15. This is, this is right in the middle of that covenant. Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. That was the promise. And once again, as we stated before, if God, if, if Abraham just believed God, all the trouble he could have avoided, because he said in the covenant, you're going to die in a good old age and you're going to be buried in peace in that good old age. Guess what, folks? All we have to do. Oh, pastor, I don't know what doing, i going to do. What is going on? Just believe his promises. We have a whole book full of promises. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, 13, Abraham died in faith, not having received all the promises, of course, but having seen them afar off and was persuaded of them and embraced them. Abraham's days were 103 score and 15 years. And the Bible says he died in faith. I don't know about you, but I want to die in faith. But here's the thing. We've been studying the life of Abraham now for weeks. Together, and not, you know, going word by word, so to speak. We've been reading and learning all that he did and all that God did through him in those 63,000 years days but here's what people forget and we stressed it last week I think in the week before they forget that with a vast majority of those 63,000 days Abraham didn't do anything spectacular Abraham delivered Lot from Sodom you talk about a hostage rescue that was an amazing moment Yeah, he had his own war but you know it would be years In fact, it would be many, many years before God would come to him again and speak like that. It was nearly 20 years after Ishmael that Isaac would come along. And then another 30 years between Mount Moriah and God's coming back to Abraham to speak to him. In fact, of these 63,000 days of Abraham's life, remember that 27,000 of them were spent back in Ur where God hadn't spoken to him yet, where he was in a land of darkness. So what are we saying? We're saying that God blessed this man who lived faithfully, just faithfully today and the next day and the next day, every day, average, boring days. For Abraham, it would have been milking goats, fixing tents, keeping his eyes on people like Abimelech, buying Selling, people trying to cheat him, bartering, selling his accounts, sitting in the doorway of his tent in the heat of the day over and over and over and over again. Those are everyday days. In other words, it would be thousands. Think of this. I wish I could be Abraham. Oh, thousands and thousands of days of regular work and laughter and family and labor and journeying and learning and praying and living so that every day was not what a biographer might call a benchmark. It just wasn't. Not a red-letter day. And folks, this is the Christian life. It really is. This is the bulk of our days on this earth. And that is why faithfulness is such a precious commodity. That is why God holds faithfulness up. Look, what is it that the Master says at the end of the journey? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Jesus is going to recognize people who were just faithful. Faithful to Him every single day faithfulness is the one thing that this man abraham is most known for above all else and so abraham gave up the ghost he breathed his last breath and you know folks when you come to verse 11 something just doesn't seem right it says and it came to pass after the death of abraham that god blessed his son isaac And Isaac dwelt by the well Leheroi. Look at verse 19. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old. And so it goes. Now wait a minute. See, what doesn't seem right? Think about this. Abraham dies and we go right immediately into Isaac? Abraham gave his sons inheritance. In fact, verse 5, if you look at it, he gave Abraham everything. Or Isaac, everything. So he dies, his inheritance is passed on, and that's it. I mean, can't we just pause for a moment and make this the year of Abraham? No, let's make it the century of Abraham. Abraham is gone. And I mean, look, if you think about it, here we are 4,000 years later. And one of the most important bilateral agreements in the Middle East is called the Abraham Accords. Abraham, thousands of years later. I mean, this is the man, the name Abraham, just like the man is without equal. So why are we just moving on? Nobody else does this in literature or in life. Why are we moving on in verse 19? Can we not, again, pause for a moment and just maybe bring Abraham back into the scene and keep him there? We need Abraham. God says these are the generations of Isaac. Isaac begat. And I'll tell you why. It's because while Abraham, that man may be gone from view, and he will be. God's plan of redemption and God's covenant that he gave is marching on. And while, yes, every single one of us as servants of God do our part, in the ongoing work of God, please understand that the work is always bigger even than any individual, even Abraham. Moses would die, and some people would be disheartened and brokenhearted. Moses would die, but God's work carried on. David would fall. John the Baptist would be beheaded. Paul would be executed in Rome. Peter was crucified and always, always, always God's promises, God's covenant, God's plan of redemption continues to march on. In fact, you'll notice this unmistakable polycetodon right here in verse 7. Look at it. And polysyndeton, you know, is like when a sentence uh, inexplicably just keeps saying and and then. And these are the days of Abraham's life, which he lived in 103 score and 15 years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people and his son Isaac. And so it goes. In other words, look, the story goes on and on, passing out of one life right into another life, but it's always following, if you will, this scarlet thread, Where all of these ands, and, and, then, and, leads to the very last chapter of the Bible. And, behold, I come quickly, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. God's redemption is always marching forward. You say, but pastor, we lost Abraham. I was just getting into this, this man, we lost Abraham. Can I ask you a question? Is something really lost if you know where it is? look at chapter 25 verse 8 the last line says and abraham was gathered to his people he gave up the ghost he died and quote he was gathered to his people you realize that's not a phrase that just means the grave because Sarah's the only one there at this point he's gathered to his people it is a reference to where sarah and all of god's people went to after they died they didn't lose abraham In fact, in the very first verse of the New Testament, in the very first sentence of the New Covenant of the New Testament, according to the ongoing plan of God's salvation and redemption, guess whose name is there? Abraham. Not only is his name there, his name is there right next to, it says, this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Abraham, quote, was gathered unto his people. And his people are our people. Aren't you glad tonight that you can say that your people are God's people? I'm mean, going to imagine tonight, just think about this for a moment. You and I, on Wednesday night, on October the 11th, 2023, we are a part, right now at this moment, of this same great salvation story. It has been passed and passed and passed. My people, who are your people, Pastor? You know, I'll say something, sometimes to someone, I'll say, have your people call my people. And John says, I don't have any people. All right, then you call me. But you know what I I love to say? God's people are my people. That means if you believe this book, just as we studied with Abraham, if he had just trusted God, if you believe that you belong to God, that his people are your people, that we're going to be gathered to the same place, I mean, if you just believe that alone, How in the world can a Christian have a self-esteem problem? I just have a problem with my self-esteem. What? You belong to the creator of the universe? His great salvation story redeemed by him? You don't have a problem with self-esteem if you're a child of God. There was a church in Iowa that had a little sign that said, The low self-esteem support group meets Thursday night at 7 in the basement. Please use the back door. Well, I got news for you. There's no back door for children of God. You and I go to the same door Abraham went through, and we go to the same people Abraham went to. And best of all, we are welcomed by the same God. He's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. Chapter 25, look at verse 21. It says, And Isaac, now it's right into Isaac. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, prayed, because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him. And Rebecca, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, this is a beautiful story. It's an amazing story. And I I gotta say this: if this study in the book of the foundations, if you will, if it ought to teach us anything, one great thing, if nothing else, it is how this book right here, the Bible. Every detail that has been recorded in the foundational scriptures, if you will, every bit of it is part and parcel of this unfolding plan of salvation and redemption. All the little details. In other words, when Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah, that's not just a children's story. That's not just a story. Every detail means something. And you saw it. You saw that it was an incident recorded in the foundational scriptures to tell us some fundamental truths about God's plan of salvation. The whole story of Cain and Abel and their offerings to God. That story, the slaying of Abel, the worldwide flood, the Tower of Babel, Noah's sons getting a bride for Isaac that we looked at last week. It's unmistakable, folks. And, of course, the hatred, the battles... The opposition, the violence, all of it is described here because we see behind it this Satan's long ongoing war against God. And specifically, yes, against God's promise to Eve way back in Genesis 3 that he would send a redeemer. I remind you that when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and there's those two disciples and they're dejected because they're not believing the word of God. They're sad and they're discouraged because they're not believing what they were told by God. Jesus was walking with them. And the Bible says what? Beginning at Moses, he expounded unto them in the Scriptures all the things concerning himself. The Bible says that Jesus started with Moses. Well, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And when God himself in the flesh spoke and explains in the New Testament to those Christians what redemption and the resurrection and the cross was all about, he began with Genesis. Every detail we have studied so far, however common, however um, every day that event might be, if it's a servant finding a bride for his master's son, if it's Abraham sitting in the doorway of his tent on a hot day, no matter what the event, all that we've studied is another piece of this puzzle, if you will. It's all a part of the mystery now revealed of God's salvation to follow man, and it's perfect. And you know, one of the reasons why that's so vital for us, it's so important for us to understand, is that when we come as now to the story of these twin boys, when we come to this story and we read about Jacob and Esau, we should know by now what? We should know by, by now that there's more to this story than the mere record of the birth of brothers and a sibling rivalry. There's going to be more to Jacob and Esau than just the first record in the Bible of twins being born. And when you read the story of this chapter and what follows... That instinct is perfectly validated. People who read the Bible and don't understand God or the Holy Spirit or the plan of redemption, they read stories like this and they say, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's just weird. It's another place. It's another time. Why would God do this? And so on. Jacob and Esau become focal points. Right here in the very first book of the Bible. They become focal points in the last book of the Bible. The book of Malachi. And then they become focal points again in the crown jewel of the New Testament, the book of Romans. These two boys, which is to say, beloved, that God is at work in this very story. And whenever God is at work, Satan is in opposition. You're seeing it in the news now. Look at verse 21. It says, And Isaac entreated, he prayed the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. By the way, that's amazing. Both Sarah and Rebecca were physically, medically unable to have children. That's what the word barren actually means. So God supernaturally comes, provides them both with a son. God is reminding us, obviously, folks, that these are divine events. They're taking place at the very beginning of salvation history. So Isaac prays for his wife. And it's it's intriguing and vital for us to remember that God hears his prayer. Now, he has a promise, right? The promise goes back. He's going to have lots of children, 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 children. Technically, he doesn't need to pray for a wife. He just needs to believe God. Isaac had to have a son by virtue of the Abrahamic covenant. But God still responds to his prayers. Now, ponder that. God is reminding us that he wants us to pray. He wants us to ask God for his will. And it's a reminder that God hears those and he answers. It says he was entreated of him. He answered the prayer. Verse 22, and the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? Why is this happening to me? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Have you noticed that in the Bible and in salvation history, the conception and the birth of children is a divinely ordained event? The birth of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Jacob's 12 sons, the birth of Moses was, Samuel, David, the birth of John the Baptist, and of course, the Lord Jesus himself. In so many cases where this redemption of God, this plan is at stake, conception, birth, and death are all divine appointments. And that's because of this. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, there was a promise to Eve that her seed, that the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man, there this prophecy of a coming Savior, her seed would come and crush the head of Satan. Well, Satan, this is his life verse now. I don't mean he likes the verse. He lives his life by this verse. Just Genesis 3.15. Satan's entire long war against God is in response to that one prophecy where God says he's going to be gone. His head will eventually be crushed. Why did Satan lead Herod to kill children? Genesis 3.15. Why did Cain slay Abel? Genesis 3.15. Why an attempt to kill Joseph and and the Hebrew babies in Egypt? All of them. Why? Genesis 3.15. You understand this. Satan hates uniquely despises a mother's womb. So much so, had it been possible, abortion no doubt would have been legalized worldwide the day Noah got off the ark, had the devil had his way. But The good news is, Satan has no authority to go where God does not allow. And so she prays, and she says, Lord, why am I like this? Why is there this struggle inside my womb? Verse 23, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. That's two children, but it's also, they're going to be nations. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now note this carefully. In the womb of Rebecca are two boys, twins, and of course, one of the, we, know one, we know this: one of those boys has a spiritual birthright. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3:15. One of those boys is the recipient of God's covenant ongoing to Abraham. And we know why. Abraham is going to be the father of a nation, from which, from which is going to come the Messiah, the redeemer the Savior. And in some measure, this is what God is telling Rebekah. Verse 24 again, And when her days to be delivered fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. You say, Pastor, how, how is it that Jacob I've been asked this before how is it that Jacob just an infant and Esau an infant not only are they struggling somehow it seems like for supremacy in this womb but now at childbirth they're seen as God said they would be they're seen as opposites and obviously the symbolism of Jacob grabbing Esau's heels it's very deep in the light of the next few chapters But, Pastor, how does the infant know this? And, folks, I can answer that question in three words. I don't know. Do you remember when Mary and Elizabeth, they were both expecting? And when they saw each other, cousins, when they met each other, Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, leaped in the womb. When she heard... She, she, how, do, how in the world does an infant recognize his Savior's mother's voice in the womb? All I can tell you is what the Bible says. And it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And it says her child in her womb, John, was ordained from the womb. And when she heard Mary's voice, that child leaped. Now, does that mean that an infant can hear voices in the womb? Of course they can. You should know that they can. But does it also mean, Pastor, that when one woman talks with another one, that their God-given children or, are planning their lives out while they're down in the womb? Sort of, just No. It doesn't mean that. However, what we are reading with regards to all of these divine appointments is what our God sees is going to happen, says it's going to happen, and promises is going to happen. And all of it is happening and has happened exactly according as he has said. And all along according to his divine plan. Verse 27, and the boys grew and Esau was a cunning hunter. A man of the field and Jacob was a plain man, a simple man dwelling in tents. So in other words, coming out of the womb, these two boys are different. Now, this is true of everybody. Every parent can say that, right? I mean, I can tell you that Andy and Rick were different from the womb. And their differences are seen today. And you see that with other children. And it even happens with twins. So they're different. Now, people have said, I know a lot of theologians and Bible commentators say, well, Esau represents the flesh and Jacob represents the spirit, whatever. But what we know is this. We know that Esau was a man of the field. Because I'm told that. We know that Jacob was a man of the fold. It reminds me a lot of Cain and Abel. Look at verse 28. And Isaac loved Esau. Because he did eat his venison, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Boy. You know, we should learn, we should learn from these mistakes of favoritism. But I remind you that when Isaac first saw Rebekah, the Bible says that he was out meditating, right? He was out just meditating on the Lord. And this is the kind of man that he was. Her husband, Isaac she fell in love with, was quiet. He was contemplative. He was pastoral, if you will. And so along comes his firstborn son, and he's the opposite. He's a hunter. He's a hairy kid. He's a man's man. Studly. And in his hunting, he brings home the meat and feeds it to his dad, and his dad loves it. Right? Dad sees... And loves in Esau what he's not. And that happens a lot too. Man, that's my man. going out there and get me some venison. On the other hand, what does Rebecca see? Well, I think for one thing, she sees God's prophecy. But she sees in Jacob what she saw as a young bride in Isaac. The quiet guy. A boy who's contemplative and meditative, a thinker. And I know a lot of people have called him a mama's boy. I don't think that's fair. But there was, in God's eyes, favoritism going on here. Never good. Verse 29. And Jacob saw or made pottage, cooked pottage, and Esau came from the field and was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, I ask thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. The word Edom means red. Now let me just stop here for a minute. I want to remind you, again, you can't just read these stories and say, well, that's a weird story. You read them in the light of everything we've studied so far. The spiritual birthright that one of these boys has in light of the covenant God gave to Abraham. As far as Isaac is concerned, that birthright belonged to Esau because he's the firstborn. That's the natural order of human events. But of course, we know that these are not mere human events. That's the point. And just as God did with Isaac and Ishmael, God is going to choose the spiritual firstborn, not the carnal firstborn. So Esau's out one day and he's trying to do what he's good at, hunt. But he fails. He fails so miserably that he comes home starving. He probably went out hungry, famished, faint. He's hungry, had to go get some food. But you know, if you're out, and you're out, and you're running around, you're tired, then you get super faint, bone hungry. He truly feels like he's going to die. And so, as he nears the house, what does he smell? He smells some stew. And what does he see? A big pot of it. Jacob, his brother, happens to be cooking it, and Esau's drooling, and he asks for some of it. And Jacob takes advantage of Esau's natural fleshly appetites and says, sure, I'll give you some, but here's the deal. Here's the bargain. Twins, am I right? I have no doubt that on this particular day, God didn't, shall we say, bless Esau's attempts at hunting. God had something to do with him going hungry and not catching anything. I'm quite sure that's true. And it's not so much to force Esau into selling his birthright but to expose probably the kind of man that Esau was. Verse 30, And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, or red. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. There's the deal. Give me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau, look at this, despised his birthright. Pastor, what does it mean that Esau despised his birthright? Well, let me quote from a single line because Hebrews has something to say about these boys. Hebrews 12, verse 16 says, Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now, look, folks, in case you sympathize with Esau, who was so hungry that day, and you don't see the value of a birthright, in case you agree with Esau's evaluation with, what good is a birthright if I'm going to die of hunger? Was he going to die of hunger if 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 that birthright was his? I remind you that this birthright included being in the lineage, the line of the Messiah himself as the only son of the God-chosen family on earth, the son of the only God-chosen family, I should say, he had a direct line. He had a direct line to the Redeemer, the promise of princely and priestly rights. He sold that, which means he sold everything that was eternal and spiritual and glorious and blessed in exchange for the most temporal, fleshly, unhallowed, common thing you can imagine. And he did so. He did so. It was a morsel of meat, the Bible says, in the New Testament. And what a picture. What a picture between the difference of earthly things and heavenly things. The flesh and the spirit, the old nature and the new. Oh, Pastor Jacob was an opportunist here. It wasn't fair. He, he was taking advantage of his brother. Of course he was. And we're going to see in the chapters ahead that Jacob was going to have to learn the hard way that God doesn't need his cunning to receive a blessing. But note this. Because the Bible doesn't focus on what Jacob did here. God doesn't say anything negative about that in this text. The Bible focuses on what Jacob desired. And what he desired, what he wanted, was that spiritual birthright. Jacob saw the value of, of eternal future things. But Esau, he said, well, sure, good deal to him. One meal, birthright, it's all yours. You know, in a lot of ways, he reminds me of Judas. Jacob gave to Esau the red pottage and bread, and Esau sold the eternal. Jesus gave to Judas the red juice and the bread, and Judas went out and sold the eternal. And he sold it for 30 pieces of silver, which is called today blood money, red money. And they both lost it all for one morsel of meat, temporal things. From this point on in our study now, you're going to notice that God is working through Jacob, not Esau. Esau would go on to be the father of the Edomites. His name was changed to Edom there, as you just saw. He becomes the arch rival of Israel. Guess who was an Edomite? Herod was an Edomite who killed all those babies trying to get to the the Lord Jesus. Jacob himself would go on and he would, as you know, wrestle with God. He will grow in his faith. His name would be changed by God from Jacob to Israel, which means prince with God. Wow. He would then have to labor. We're going to see this. Years for his wife, Rachel. And they would have 12 sons they would be the 12 tribes of Israel and so it goes and so it goes and through it all god's work and god's plan marches on and here we are tonight thousands of years later and as paul himself a hebrew the hebrews of the stock of abraham as the new testament says as we are the sons of abraham isaac and jacob by faith and as the sons of abraham are still hated Those who are children of Abraham by faith, that's us. We remain right smack in the middle, the center of God's continuing plan. And that plan is right on schedule. But Pastor Satan's fighting hard. Well, he is. And if you go back to the end, you're going to see he's going to fight even harder. And when he knoweth he hath but a short time, he's going to have great wrath. He's fighting hard. And in the meantime, these everyday days, you know, the normal days, getting up in the morning, going to work. In all of those days, Satan is going to fight you and try to get you to sell your birthright. Your spiritual birthright, who you are as a child of God for one morsel of meat. For a moment of fleshly pleasure. But it ain't worth it. And so in the meantime, follow Abraham's example and live every day trusting all the promises of God, valuing and desiring the things that be of God, and keep on living, preaching, and believing the redemptive plan of God, the salvation that comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. I heard President Biden this afternoon say, in answer to a question from a reporter, he was meeting with Jewish leaders in America over the White House, And the question was, Mr. President, what is your answer to all the violence and the hatred in the Middle East? And here's what he said. He said, my faith. And then they're just sat and waited. What do you mean your faith? And he said this. He said, my faith. I truly believe, he said, not a joke. I truly believe that every human being has a spark of light in his heart. And we must all speak to that spark of light that is in the heart of every human being, and that's how we're going to find peace. Okay, good luck with that. If that's your faith, if that's what you believe. Folks, there's no spark of light in someone who beheads babies or who beheads them in the womb. Jesus said in Matthew 6.23 that without him, without Christ, the whole body is full of darkness. There's no answer to this violence. I mean, we read just weeks ago about Ishmael. There's no answer to the, the pain and the suffering and the, the evil, the hatred and the bloodshed in the world, in any place of the world, outside of this book. Outside of the truth of God's redemption. But by the grace of God, we would be over there doing the exact same thing. But within this book, within its pages is truth. And this is the truth that Jesus said, shall make you free. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that we can look around, we can look within, we can look in your word, we can look everywhere and see that there has not failed one word of all your good promise, that your plan of redemption is marching on exactly as you have said. And that is a glory. That is a glory for those who trust you in your word. For those who know Jesus as Savior. And that's us tonight, and we thank you. And we thank you, Father, that we can walk out of these doors tonight looking at the world and not, not having a false hope that there's some spark of light in every human. But we can have the true hope, the light of the world, which is Christ, our Lord. And thank you that that light has shined in our hearts. And open our eyes and enlighten us to the truth of your word. Bless these people to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.